The presenting sponsor of the Audible is Trader Joe's. Bruce, do you like to listen to podcasts? I do, Stu. Every time I go to the gym, I listen to a different one, and sometimes I listen to our podcast. Well, guess what? Trader Joe's has its own podcast now. It's called Inside Trader Joe's. It's a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside TJ's tasting panel. Travel to wineries in Napa Valley and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. And we promised people last week an all-mailbag episode. Do you think so, we'll be able to honor that promise? For the most part. Let's sneak in a little bit of news. Ohio State's quarterback battle seems to have been resolved quite a bit. Even though it was a three-horse race, the two front runners were Dwayne Haskins former five-star quarterback recruit with a really, really big arm, and Joe Burrow, who is graduating, who has graduated, and has a lot, he's very talented too, coach's son. Well, Joe Burrow has kind of taken himself out of that mix. He has announced he is transferring, and like I said, he has two years of eligibility left. He should be a pretty hot commodity for anybody who uh, watched the Ohio State spring game. Granted, it's a spring game, but saw how he responded to about as much pressure as you could probably put on a guy in that setting and so how are you feeling about Dwayne Haskins as a dark horse I don't want to say Heisman candidate too soon but how do you feel about Dwayne Haskins as the guy for this Ohio State team yeah I mean it seemed like kind of the obvious answer all along now part of that is I think we'd be we'd be thinking about it differently if he hadn't had the opportunity to come in in the Michigan game last year and he was you know as much of an unknown as the other guys but we did see that glimpse of it I remember still when Urban Meyer came on our podcast on the day he signed and proclaimed him, what, the best quarterback recruit he'd ever seen or something like that? Yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was glowing, the response. Uh, Dwayne Haskins, I remember seeing through the Elite 11 process, definitely a talented kid. And you saw that that arm, as you said, in the Ohio, in the Ohio State-Michigan game. But you saw a couple of, of wow throws. And the way I would almost, I would categorize it is, Something similar to what, when you have all these NFL scout types gushing about Josh Allen. I don't know if his arm is quite as big, but it has definitely got the wow factor to it. And we'll see if they can get that downfield passing game cranked up. Because if you're going to say there had been a flaw of Ohio State's offense the past few years, that's been it. So, now let me play a little bit of devil's advocate here on the Joe Burrow side. Not to rain on this guy's parade, but... Twitter kind of lit up Tuesday. People get all excited when there's a high-profile grad transfer on the market. And we can talk about possible destinations, but do people get a little too overexcited sometimes? I mean, you, you just talked about his glowing performance in the spring game, but it's, he hasn't started a single college game. He hasn't really played any meaningful action. He could be really good, but we, we really don't have any idea. No, you're exactly right. I mean... I watched there, and it was impressive. You talk to people on the program. They speak really highly of him. But, again, there's a big unknown. And getting back to your, your, you know, your larger point, absolutely do we, and I do it as much as anybody, 
get over our skis in this kind of thing as it relates to hyping up the unknown, how these guys are going to fit. I can give you a story idea for you to pursue or maybe you to farm out to one of your underlings. I'd be curious the the percentage on grad transfer quarterbacks. And and again, I don't want to say some guys are busts or not, but how it's worked out. And I remember one of the ones that stood out to me was Danny O'Brien. He was at uh, Maryland at one point, was a really talented freshman quarterback, who or really talented freshman, ended up leaving, ended up at Wisconsin. There was some acrimony into some schools trying to get him and how he was blocked, I remember. I I remember some of this vaguely. Turned out he really didn't. He certainly didn't have anywhere near the impact Russell Wilson had when he went to Wisconsin. But you know he wasn't much of a factor. I mean, we've seen this. The guys who are Russell Wilson and Vernon Adams and you know I don't know Jacob Coker kind of fits into this similar mode. Jacob Coker, you know, gave Jameis Winston a big run for his money supposedly and he was big and strong and pretty athletic and everybody said all the right things and he went to Alabama and certainly had his moments but it wasn't like he was a a future first or second round pick right I mean yeah Jake Coker obviously he won a national championship so he gets that on his resume obviously but to your point I mean think about I mean, I feel like we spent a couple months on the podcast last year speculating about where Malik Zaire was going to go, and he had almost no impact at Florida. Eric Golson at Florida State the year before that, or two years before that. And these are guys who played high-profile roles at their previous schools, but it just gets to the point that if somebody's going to be a grad transfer, it probably means they either didn't really make it on the field or lost their job. Like, there's a reason they ended up having to transfer. You don't... You don't get a lot of... I mean, Russell Wilson was such an unusual circumstance. He was a three-year standout quarterback who Tom O'Brien just kind of let go because of the baseball thing. It wasn't like he lost his job because he wasn't playing well. You know who was a, who I thought worked out pretty well, all things equal, was Jake Rudock. He was a pretty good quarterback yeah. at Iowa. Wasn't sure if he was going to be the guy. He transferred within his conference and did a really nice job for Michigan in Jim Harbaugh's first year and his you know, I believe he's still on an NFL roster there and is, is kicked around and probably exceeded what a lot of people thought. But again, you're right. You rattle off some of those names of guys who I, I just think there becomes a, a situation where some of these schools become become pretty desperate. So now whether, whether Joe Burrow ends up at LSU or Florida or maybe with Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, I don't know where else, you know, he's been rumored to, to be in the mix. But that just kind of speaks to, I think, the concern those fan bases have about their own quarterback situation. Well, I think sometimes from the outside perspective, we're looking at it as, or the fans are looking at it as he could come in and win the job, whereas the coaches may be looking at it more as we just need an extra body at that position. All right? But you mentioned the two schools that have that are getting mentioned the most, LSU and Florida. Is that Are those, in your mind, the front runners? Yeah, I would put it in Cincinnati just because of the connection there to, you know, a coach who he knows pretty well and Luke Fickle. I don't know that there's going to be the case. I would think with Joe Burrow at Florida, I'm not sure in terms of how he fits as much in that kind of, you know, run the quarterback a lot with Dan Mullen. But we'll see. You know, certainly there's an un, there's a unstable quarterback situation in Gainesville. There's an unstable quarterback situation at LSU, so I think those are those are certainly viable options. One thing to keep in mind is that he uh, 
has two years of eligibility remaining. So obviously he's going to be looking for a place where he can go in and start for two years. And while Florida has been underwhelming at the quarterback position, I think there's a assumption that uh, either Felipe Franks or Emory Jones, who's coming in, will get the job sooner than later. LSU is a little bit more muddled, although they do seem to have a pretty clear front runner. What about um? I don't oh, think they have a pretty clear front runner. <laughs> well, then that might be the best place I don't to think go. They do. People, um, by the way, we should just real quickly mention he has family connections to Nebraska. A dad and two brothers played there. Doesn't I don't think that's a viable option. Scott Frost has enough quarterbacks, and one of whom that freshman we talked about, Adrian Martinez, will be the guy sooner than later. Now, what about I, I? This is just me asking you, like off the bat. Was there any chance he would go where his dad is now at Ohio Ohio University? I hadn't heard that. I guess it's possible. I, I'll be honest. I spent some time with some Mac coaches, but I didn't really spend time with Frank Solcher. I don't really know what even their quarterback situation is. I have no idea what their quarterback situation is, but his dad has been the defensive coordinator there since Frank Solich got there. So I don't know. I'm guessing he's looking for a higher profile destination than that. And certainly those two SEC schools would qualify. Hey, by the way, I ran in last week when I was in Arizona, I ran into... Mike Norvell, the head coach at uh, Memphis, and we were talking about his grad transfer, Brady White, who he had worked with back when they were both at Arizona State. Brady White is the rare grad transfer who's going to have three years of eligibility left. And so, you know, I was kind of like, he saw me go, wow, that's something. He goes, yeah, he's a genius. He was able to move move through school so fast. So he graduated in, what, two and a half years? Yeah. I, I believe Ryan Finley was similar, though, at NC State when he went from Boise. I think Ryan Finley had three years, and he's got, still got one year left. And that certainly worked out well for NC State. So, But you just don't usually hear that. It's, it's something to have a guy who has two years, much less three. By the way, just to follow up on your point, Nathan Rourke was a sophomore starter last year at Ohio, 17 touchdowns, seven INTs. Is Joe Burrow better than him? I don't know. I don't know how how highly thought of Nathan Rourke is, but he was a starter last year and seemed to have a pretty good year. There you go. We got you all up to speed on the Bobcats quarterback situation for 2018. <laughs> and now let's get to your emails. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. What do you want to say? Hey, before, before we get to that, do you feel like I just cheated by, like, by basically Googling that. and I, I Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this. I've never heard of Nathan Rourke. I don't know anything about him until just I get, just kind of Google that. Do you want until me I, to text Chris Vanini and get a scouting report? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get some because I know we have some Bobcat Bobcat listeners. So, but That, I, I mean, that not to, to flavor this too long, but OU, as a, as a Cincinnati native, that's the one we refer to as OU, is... Uh, I don't know. I mean, Frank Solich has been there now for way longer than he was the head coach at Nebraska. And they go to a bowl game pretty much every year. But they're like, you know, they've never had that UCF, NIU, Western Michigan. They've never had that breakthrough season. It seems like they're always like hovering around eight and four. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's productive. I feel like it's almost like, as you said, they've kind of flown under the radar where you know, you had that year where NIU goes to the Orange Bowl. You had P.J. Fleck really getting people fired up at Western Michigan. Even when, like, Buffalo had a really good year under Turner Gill because it was kind of felt like it came out of the blue and it's a little Cinderella story, you get that. And I think when they've just been consistently good, 
you you know people just kind of take them for granted how's this and for it, consistency especially at a group of five school because you know most group of five schools there's a lot of coaching turnover so here they've had the same head coach since 2005 and i'm not going to go through the whole run but starting in 2010 we'll say eight and five ten and four nine and four seven and six six and six eight and five eight and six nine and four that's that's pretty consistent it is. It is. And I, I would, you know, what also probably works against them getting a little bit of attention is because of his age. It's not like people are talking about him like they would talk about. And I say people, I mean, people like us are, you know, we would talk about PJ Fleck and we would talk about, you know, a few years ago, Dave Doran and guys who were Matt Campbell, rising stars, Jason Candle now. Like it's a little different. You just kind of, it's almost like he's on, not that it's on autopilot, but just like I said, you take it for granted a little bit. He's also been a little bit, a little bit of hard luck. He has won his division in the MAC one, two, four times, but never actually won the conference title game. And also, name a star player from Ohio during that entire run. That's a good question. There actually was a quarterback who got a lot of attention about Antonio. That's not who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the quarterback who beat Penn State. Tyler Tettleton? Yeah. He was kind of a big name, but he's he's in coaching now. He was at OU the couple of years ago. There you go. But other than that, it's not I mean, they've never had like their Kenzie Milton or Jordan Lynch or anybody like that. So I don't know why we're still talking about this. Let's get to the mailbag. <laughs> As always, you can send your emails to the at gmail.com. And Bruce, it would not be a all mailbag edition without a featured contribution from our good friend Jason Gorluski in Columbia, South Carolina. I will read Jason's question. And this is up your alley, Stu. There's been a lot of talk about new rules involving kickoffs. Do you think kickoffs will eventually be removed from college football? Do you think the new kickoff rules are an overreaction? Or do you think in 25 years, we'll look back on kickoffs as reckless and unnecessarily dangerous? Like, I can't believe we used to do that. Thanks again, Jason Gorluski, Columbia, South Carolina. Why, why do you think kickoff rules are up my alley? I'm just curious. Because I, this is a question I don't really love to answer. Oh, okay. I don't. I, I feel like it's it's something that I'm just you not, don't have an opinion on, right? I don't have a much of an opinion on. I would personally, I would like to see the kickoffs remain in in football because, as much as I don't necessarily wear a traditionalist as my on my, you know on my sleeve, I do, it's something I do like about the game. If you show me that there is a significantly higher percentage of injuries come on kickoffs even more than let's say punts then i i would be open to to this i just part of me feels like you know what i wouldn't like to see it taken out of the game if there was any way to keep it in the game all right so i do think they will eventually be removed from college football in fact the nfl is talking about much the same thing this rule that they passed this year is kind of I feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna do what they're doing here, which is basically you can fair catch a kickoff that is between the goal line and the twenty five. So even if it's at like the three yard line, you're gonna get it at the twenty five. So basically, they're trying to dissuade kick returns. Well, if you don't want people to return kicks, I can think of a really good solution for that. Just don't have kickoffs. Now the argument against that there's two arguments against them. One has credence in my mind. One doesn't. The idea that, oh, a kickoff return for touchdown is such an exciting play. Well, it happens so infrequently. I mean, you're talking what? How many how many kickoffs are there in the course of a college football season to get, like, 
a few dozen return for a touchdown. So I don't think that's a reason to keep it, but the onside kick is obviously a huge part of college football strategy. It played a huge part in the national championship game two years ago. If you get rid of the kickoff, the only um, possible equivalent I've seen is Greg Schiano, who has been very adamant that they should get rid of kickoffs, proposed something like a, like a fourth and 15. Like if you wanted to try to keep the ball after scoring a touchdown, you could attempt a fourth and 15 play. So if I said to you, you could get rid of kickoffs tomorrow, would you want to get rid of kickoffs tomorrow? No, I'm not saying like I'm desperate to get rid of kickoffs. I'm saying I think that's where it's headed and that I, and that this, I would, if you're going to keep kickoffs, I would rather you keep it the way it was than this change that they just made. I just, it seems like it's going to be just a big waste of everybody's time if they're just going to fair catch every kickoff. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's, it feels like it's counterintuitive into college, into college football for them to do something like this short of overwhelming evidence to the contrary and maybe that exists but i just think that once you go down this road then what's next you know my colleague nicole auerbach has written about this several times she is very uh very much of the opinion that they should be banned they're extremely dangerous and i mean we shouldn't the one thing i don't want to do is kind of minimize that aspect i'm of with it. you i'm with to you, jason's but- point you know are we going to look back in 25 years and think that they – we may look back in 25 years and think the entire sport was reckless and unnecessarily dangerous. I mean nobody has rec- yet – It is yeah. reckless. Uh, not to get all Danny Cannell on you, but it is reckless and unnecessarily dangerous. But does that, and that is football. And I'm not saying it should go back to what it was like in the 20s where I, I feel like you'd hear these stories where a lot of people died, over, relatively speaking, over the course of you know five years of football. But – I think there's going to be a lot of inherent dangers with it. Can can we work to make the game safer? Yes, but I wonder once you once you take kickoffs out away from you know out of football, then what's the next thing? Can I ask you something? So you and I have talked about this offline. You are definitely much less worried about concussions and CTE than I. Like you've said, you'd have no problem with your son Ben playing football, right? Yeah. Now, would I want him playing when he is? six or seven no my reaction would probably be once he gets in uh you know eighth ninth grade then i would be more open to it one of the things that you know we've had this discussion about is just the coaching involved in it also some of the stories you hear which you'll see on you know on real sports or some of these other things are guys who have played football for 20 years if i'm talking about again if, if my son really wants to play then I don't think I would dissuade him from it. And all, like I said, all uh, some of these other people who are you see on TV, I don't think it happens. Now, you can have injuries if you play one time. We're talk- The injuries sometimes could be neck injuries. They could be knee injuries. They could be back injuries, whatever. The CTE and, and concussion issues, obviously, the more you play, the, the greater risk you, you have. So I don't want to I don't want to dis, dis, dismiss it or di, diminish it because I think it's a real problem, but I think there are real problems in a lot of issues. You know, a lot of sports where there's there's risk short of short of probably golf and tennis. I mean, from everything I've heard, there's risks in soccer. The you reason know, I'm asking you this is that there's no, this is not out of nowhere. We are recording this on Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon at this point. This morning it was the. Um, was the Cotton Ball Hall of Fame induction, 
By the way, one of your all-time favorite coaches was inducted into the college to the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame today. You know who that was? It was one of my colleagues from my CBS days who you loathe. I do not loathe him, but you like <laughs> to make jokes him. about that. Houston Dale Nutt was inducted into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame today, but also inducted was former Oklahoma and Dallas Cowboys safety Roy Williams. And at the press conference, he was asked about the 2002 Cotton Bowl and where it ranked all time for him. And Williams said, I don't know. If I didn't have so many damn concussions, I'd be able to tell you. That's just the honest truth. Wow. He's saying he can't even remember what his favorite games were. Wow. Yeah. So wow. when I hear things like that, I can't really gloss over it. That's that's alarming about a guy that you and I both covered and frankly didn't, you know, play it not that long ago. Yeah. And look, certainly was it one of the more physical collision guys in the sport. Look, when you whenever you hear whether it's Mike Ditka or some of these older players talk about if they had a child who was coming up, would they let them play the sport? And they would say no. Uh, it's it's very concerning, you know. It's just I don't know. I, I want to say I am conflicted on it because you know wisdom would tell you that and logic would tell you that, but I, I just come back to you know, where do you draw the line with it? Yeah. And I don't have the answer on that. Like, that's why I said, it's like after, you know, if you remove kickoffs from football, then, then what's the next thing that you would, you would feel needs to be taken out. What do you think that would be? Oh, I don't think you can just strip out, you know, this piece and that piece and that piece, you, you know, there's going to have to be, and there's going to have to be significant, uh, enhancements made to the equipment and all that stuff and you know it's interesting it's probably been about what six seven years now since concussions and CT really came to the forefront and in that time I've read about all kinds of studies I've uh, there have been panels but I've yet to hear anybody say that they've come up with any sort of great solutions like, I've yet to hear a college coach or team or say we're wearing these new uh, such and such, and concussions are down 35%. Yeah, I remembered, uh, I don't know, Stanford, somebody had mouthpieces about yep, it because yep. of, you know, that was probably three years ago. Just as we're having this discussion, I'm thinking about this, and you're in a, in a different situation because you don't have a son, you have a daughter, but would you feel, and so again, it's a hypothetical, so maybe it's not realistic to even ask you this, but would you feel somewhat of a hypocrite if, you would say, you know what, I wouldn't let my son play football, but we both work in football. You know, we're not, it's not like we coach teams. It's not like we're, we manufacture equipment, but our livelihoods are certainly tied into the sport. Would you feel like a hypocrite? It's, if you uh, say, I wouldn't let my son yeah. play football, but I'm going to write about other, write about other people's it. sons getting their yeah. brains beat up. It's funny you say that. I, I get a question like that about once a week to my mailbag on the athletics somebody always yeah. asks about cte and some and, and there was one i think even today um that i was when i was picking the questions that was something almost exactly like what you just said so i mean i haven't thought about it too much but i guess the way i would put it is and by the way i just in case i haven't made this clear i know if i had a son i would i've said the only positions i would let him i would let him play if he was either the punter or like Maybe a DB, like, but definitely not. Roy not. Williams just told you he had so many. That's true. That's true. They'd have to be a cornerback, I think, not a, like a safety who goes kind of head hunting. But no, mostly just punter, punter or kicker. 
Okay. Definitely not return man. Definitely not line of scrimmage. Quarterback, running back. There are no other positions. There's no. There's no positions that are <laughs> okay. safe on the field. Punter and kicker. That's my. That's my answer. And frankly, with my lack of athletic genes, that may be the only position that's even in the cards for this theoretical son. But to answer, well, I'm your, hope, I'm hoping yours would have been a straight on kicker because I'm not seeing a lot of leg extension from, from you at this point. <laughs> I actually think my daughter might have a future in soccer. She's only two. It's hard to tell, but she she can run around and kick that thing. Okay, let's. So now okay, we're losing all our serious, audience, so. serious. Um, <laughs> yes, I do feel a little bit of guilt, but if you, how do I say this? If you cover Wall Street for a living, do you feel guilt about the fact that you end up covering a lot of people who do a lot of sleazy and unethical things? If you cover politics for a living, God knows there's a lot of that. <laughs> in that industry if you cover but those um, are those, hollywood for a living and you found out and, and you you know harvey weinstein stuff comes out i mean nothing is people perfect. who are in it they're not it's not inherent to the sport but i'm saying there's there's kind of a there's a i mean i mean you could even before concussions people would say how, how do you feel about covering a sport where there's such rampant cheating and, and hypocrisy and this and like there's just at the end of the day like there's good and bad with everything okay you're trying to talk talk us off the ledge. So that's fine. And I'm sure Let's people move. will hear that and say I'm I'm being insensitive or I'm not taking it seriously enough. Believe me, I'm not saying like I have completely completely guilt free conscience on this. But I guess I'm not yet. You know who was it recently that um, uh, Ed Cunningham right said he's mm-hmm. not going to call football anymore. He's not comfortable. Now he said he's not comfortable promoting it because he feels like as a TV commentator he's promoting the sport. That's what we, that's yeah. you know what, that's what we do. Yeah, we, do, we 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 may not do it as directly as maybe Ed sees that he did it as a, in a TV role. I certainly feel like, you know, I promote the sport in the way we cover it. Look, I'm the editor in chief of a startup site that wouldn't exist or wouldn't have any sort of traction if not for the rap, rabid interest out there in college football. So you're right. We both of us obviously benefit from a robust and healthy sport, and so because of that. I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm maybe a little bit naively hopeful that, that there is stuff going on behind the scenes, that the doctors and scientists and equipment makers are actually working to try to fix this thing. But um, there's reason to be skeptical when you think about how the NFL spent years and years literally punting on that whole issue. So I mean, it remains to be seen. I don't mean to, like, cut this off, but we've only gotten through one question. Yes, I think we need to move. Let's, <laughs> let me uh, grab this Arthur Golwitzer question. Guys, as always, your podcast is terrific. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, Joel Klatt seems to be one of the best, most knowledgeable analysts at Fox. But I have to disagree with his comments about the status of the Texas program. Uh, Joel was a recent guest for people who may not have heard that podcast a couple weeks ago. I think Joel fell victim to what seems to be a common media mistake, falling in love with the skill positions and ignoring the offensive line. I think you all did that with USC last year. So here's a free tip. This Texas team is still very young and very thin on the offensive line. That will be Texas's weak spot again this year, and that's what makes it hard to win consistently. I live in Austin and follow college football closely, but I have no bias here. I'm not a UT grad, but I like when the blue bloods of college football are good. So I haven't seen Texas practice this offseason like Joel has, so it's hard mm-hmm. to, you know, I'm not going to say he's right or wrong, but I am a little more skeptical of Texas than he is. For much that reason, you know, there's a lot of issues on that 
team still. There are there are pieces to be excited about, but yeah, there are definitely, especially on offense, just whole units to be really skeptical about. Now that being said, we talked about grad transfers earlier, and grad transfer quarterbacks are often disappointing, but sometimes guys, you know, there's other guys in other positions that you plug in and can, and can you know, fill a hole. And in Texas's case, I think they're hoping that Calvin Anderson, the grad transfer from Rice, a three-year starter there, highly regarded, is going to step in and start a tackle, which is obviously a huge need for that program uh, after Connor Williams' departure. Yeah, and also I think, by the way, you were the one who was pumping USC last year, not me. No, 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 no. I was, uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I actually saw that one come. Now, USC did win the Pac-12, so it wasn't some like, huge flop. But I was definitely pumping the brakes on the national title talk, and specifically because of uh, offensive line and receiver. You know where I had USC last year in the preseason? Do you actually do a top 25? I didn't. Two years ago, I had USC 25. Two years ago, but you. Well, this is he's talking about. I know coming off the Rose Bowl, everybody had them preseason one, two, three, something like that. I couldn't tell you where I had them exactly, but I was definitely uh, more cautious about them. And now I'm being really cautious. Cause I don't even have them in the top twenty-five. Yeah, um, actually, you got a question about later. All right, your turn. Pick a question, too. Okay, this is from our friend Andy in Switzerland. Hi guys, love the podcast. If only I could get your sponsors here in Switzerland. Does Lisa not ship to Switzerland? (laughs) Maybe look into that. I know there's no Trader Joe's. Following up on your recent discussions of the various QB controversies out there, it's true that Tua and Dwayne Haskins entered their team's respective biggest games of the year and made a series of game-winning plays against strong defenses. Many think this puts them in the driver's seat for the upcoming season. Keep in mind this was sent before the news about Joe Burrow transferring. But how much of these half-game performances can be attributed to the lack of scouting by those defenses? It's not like there was film to review their tendencies. Per your points about whether they can do it game in and game out, did unexpectedly coming in off the bench give them a one-time advantage? I wouldn't think so because it's not like this was, and this is an example only Oregon State fans will know, it's not like this is Connor Blunt showing up against Boise State out of the blue where he's not even on the roster. People knew how strong Tua's arm was. They knew how strong Dwayne Haskins was. Now, how much were they prepared for that? Because that's not what they were seeing a lot of in the run-up for the game. That's probably a different story. But I just think it was guys who rose up to the occasion and certainly made plays when they mattered most. I think it was really that. But I think sometimes you get a small sample size. And as I've said before, I just think that's what a little bit of what we're dealing with from a consistency sake. I think Andy may be onto something a little bit in that, I mean, it's not like, not necessarily that they didn't know like what kind of players they were, but schemes and play calling change based on the quarterback. And so Nick Saban himself said after the playoff game in 2014 against Ohio State that Cardell Jones, that really threw them off, that they didn't have a lot they could. The Ohio State changed their offense quite a bit with him and they didn't have a lot of tape to prepare for on that. I know I'm not supposed to talk about that team in, <laughs> in uh, the South. We're on hiatus for a couple weeks on this but, one. But so. i got to bring this up in reference to this. There have been two lists that came out in the last couple of days, one of them from Athlon, one of them from the Sporting News, that ranked the top quarterbacks in all college football from 2018, and Tua was number two in the country on both of them. 
this is getting a little out of control off of one. I mean, it was a national championship game, but it was one half. Who did you feel like got snubbed in his in, in place of him? Oh, I didn't really. I can't say I studied them in depth. It just seems a little presumptuous to put him ahead of, you know, like uh, guys who have been two, three-year starters and been all-conference, all-American, that kind of thing. Okay. This next question is from James Birdsong. Hey, Stu and Bruce, in terms of favorable schedules, what would you peg Oregon on a 10-point t- scale, one being the easiest possible to draw and 10 being the hardest? When looking over the 2018 schedule, Oregon's really stuck out to me. Here's why. Their non-conference consists of Bowling Green, Portland State, and San Jose State. Combined, these schools were 4-32. and 32. Wow. And the Vikings are an FCS program. All of these schools are play consecutively to start Oregon season. Seven of their 12 games are played at home, including five of their first six games. The Ducks host Stanford and Washington, the two teams favored in the Pac-12 North. Furthermore, Stanford comes right after the aforementioned non-conference games. The Ducks play, then play at Cal, have a bye week before Washington visits Eugene. Do you think Mario Cristobal can take advantage of this favorable draw and put the Ducks in the driver's seat for the Pac-12 North title? So that non-conference schedule is about as bad a non-conference schedule I've seen for a Power 5 team in a long time. And it's a little it was a little embarrassing for the Ducks that they didn't schedule a Power 5 team. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get eight gazillion emails now telling me that somebody canceled, somebody bought out of a contract, and that may well be the case. But, yeah, Bowling Green, Portland State, San Jose State. I think this this might have been the year that actually Texas A&M had to switch. Okay. Out of, out of the schedule. is either this year or next year, I thought. So. so let me just run through the whole thing real quickly to give people the full picture. It's those three, then Stanford, then Cal, then Abai, then Washington at home, at Washington State, at Arizona, UCLA at home, at Utah, Arizona State, at Oregon State. All right, he said scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the easiest. I'll go 3 because he's right. I mean, that, that all sets up pretty favorably. But they did they do have to play at Arizona against Khalil Tate, at Wazoo, who's been pretty good recently, and at Utah, who is always tough to beat in Salt Lake. So there are some 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 tough road games on there. But in terms of, like, non-conference, obviously, and then the teams that are at least expected to be the top teams in that conference, getting them at home or off a bye week, you know, that part is very favorable. I think it's about as easy as it possibly could be. Hmm. You're getting those road games, as, as he mentioned. All right, so Cal, they struggled to go, you know, over five and seven last year. I'm not sure they're going to be much better than that. They get them on the road. Washington State, I think, will be much worse than they were last year. Big staff shakeup, uh, new quarterback, lost a lot on on defense. I think they will really struggle. As Arizona on the road, I think that is a tough game. Utah on the road, certainly a tough game. And then Oregon State, which I, on the road, which I think will be dreadful. Plus, you get Arizona State in the non, you know, in the uh, from the other side, and that's home. I think this team should has a real chance to win nine games. They are going to be very big up front. Uh, their receiving core got a little more help when they got a grad transfer from Wake Forest. I think Justin Herbert, as long as he stays healthy, will be one of the five best quarterbacks in college football. Defensively, I think their front seven will be really good. I think secondary-wise, they're kind of underwhelming. But uh, but the defensive front, I think, could be really good. They don't have a ton of depth. But I think this team, to me, I think they're competing with Stanford for second place. I think Washington, to me, is clearly the Pac-12, the class of the Pac-12. 
But I think as Stanford should be really good on offense. I think they're going to be really suspect on defense. And I think Oregon's right there. And for a little bit of what James said, the schedule sets up extremely well for them. By the way, just in terms of awful schedules, I remember what I thought was one of like the worst non-conference groups I, I can remember in recent years was what Boston College had two years ago. At UMass, Wagner, who's a 1AA, Buffalo, and UConn, and it was a home game for them. So that's when you're trying to buy your way to 6-6, six and six, basically. And you know what? They bought their way to 7-6. and six. There you go. They won two games in the ACC, but had a winning record because the non-conference schedule was putrid. I feel bad because I, I don't have the name of this que- for this question to ask you. Maybe I can look it up while you're answering. Okay. Hey, Stu and Bruce, which is more likely to happen first? One, someone other than Clemson or Florida State wins the ACC Atlantic. Last happened in 2008 BC. Someone other than Alabama or Auburn wins the SEC West. Last happened 2011 LSU. I'm going to go with number two. I think it's more likely for somebody else to win the SEC West. I just don't see when I look at, at uh, how the ACC is set up, where you have Clemson and Florida State, who are you know two real heavyweights. After that, I don't, you know, I think Louisville had a had a good run. I don't think they're going to get back up there. And then the only one I think has a real shot at like overtaking them, any shot, was NC State, and they just lost a ton of guys into the NFL draft. So to me, I just think it's you got two heavyweights and then a bunch of middleweights and some lightweights in that group. Whereas over on the you know in the SEC West, Jimbo Fisher just came into the league. I think he's going to make them a real force. I don't know about Mississippi State. I think if Joe Moorhead has a has a chance, it's almost this year because I think there's a lot. You know, they have some really good D linemen. They have a quarterback who I think fits what what he wants to do. I think he can do some things that may catch people off guard a little bit. So there it makes sense. LSU to me is built for 2019. I don't know what they're going to do this year, but I think with some of the players they have, I think they would have a, they should have a really good team in 2019, but I don't see it in 2018. So for me, I'm going to say it's the SEC West. I'm going to agree with you. I think that Alabama has, has you know, as, as dominant as they've been, obviously doesn't win that division every year, didn't win it last year. And I think that the separation between them and those schools that you're just talking about is not quite as drastic as the separation right now. Frankly, the separation right now between Clemson and anybody else in that division, including at Florida State. But, you know, you do expect Florida State to rebound here under Willie Taggart fairly quickly. By the way, that question came from Brian Smith. All right, Stu, this next question comes from John Malanga from lovely Fort Worth, Texas. Stu and Bruce, Pete Thamel talked about how Alabama is the most hospitable school for visiting pro scouts. My question is, which schools are the most hospitable for visiting national college football writers? And a related question, which schools' SIDs are the most helpful to you guys when you visit? Conversely, which schools are the least hospitable? Why don't I take the most hospitable, you take the least hospitable? No, absolutely (laughs) not. I think we're going to agree on this, and so I just wanted to use this as as an... I picked this question specifically to give a shout out to one SID in particular who is retiring. And that is Tim Bray at Clemson, who's been doing it since I want to say 1979. And he is, he and that school are the answer to who is the most hospitable to visiting national media, or frankly, probably visiting any media. You can, I was there in early April and um, got anybody I needed, 
sat down with Cleveland Farrell right in the middle of the cafeteria or, or not the training table where everybody was eating. I even got to go down the slide in that uh, fun, that fun new building. So, Tim, is there is, video of wait, 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 is there video of you on the slide? I bet there is. There is, but it's pretty um, underwhelming. What? No, it's, it's <laughs> it, I don't. I'm trying to temper expectations. Like, yes, there is video, but you watch it, you're like, oh, okay. But Tim's voice can be heard in that cheering me on. He's great, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be not the same to cover Clemson without him. But to his credit. He's lined up quite a sweet retirement gig, and it's frankly not even retirement. He's still working. He's going to be, uh, I don't know if you know this, he's going to be a researcher for NBC Sports on the PGA Tour. So he's going to, I know he said he's going to the British Open. He's going to whatever golf events the that NBC has, which, you know, if you're into golf, that seems like a pretty good way to uh, spend your weekends. Okay. Uh, any others that come to mind? First of all, is that your answer, or is there somebody else? It, it's not going to be my answer. It's not a knock on Tim. I have not been to Clemson. Okay, so what's your can. answer? You know, I'm going to give you a, a, a two answers. So first of all, I think for the most part, I get I get a different perspective on it from I come at it as for 20 years as a writer, and then the last three years coming in on the TV side. Yeah, is there it's a way for you to different. separate those? Because TV gives you some advantages. And there's a couple of them. First of all, like, the ones on the TV side who just are extremely hospitable, and this has a lot to do, I think, with the head coach, too, but uh, Wisconsin and Iowa really treat you very, very well. Not to say other schools don't. Ohio State has been awesome for me, and there's been a bunch of other schools, especially, but uh, Ohio State and Wisconsin, I mean, I'm sorry, Iowa and Wisconsin really stood out last year because I hadn't dealt with them that much, and they jumped out at me. The one that, that I said I have a different perspective on is I live here. And so I've seen a ton of national media come through. Tim Tesselon, by the way, the SID at USC, we tease him a lot because if he's, you know, a thousand years old. But this is going to be his 40th season as USC's, not as their head SID. It's probably like his 36th. But a, he's in a thousand it, years old and his hair hasn't changed color in the, in the slightest. He is an institution out he here. He is. But anytime anybody comes out here to usc in the national media i feel like they get treated extremely well absolutely they're, they may they're... not get fed well if they cover a game with his you know crappy <laughs> pasta or whatever but but they get treated well also hasn't changed in a thousand years i know but they get treated well he sets them up with players they make time whether it's pete carroll or clay helton or any of the guys in between they usually are, are surprisingly accessible because there are certain schools where the SIDs, and I can think of a couple off the top of my head, where the SIDs are delightful people, but maybe the head coach isn't that accommodating. In the case of USC, it, it, it lines up both ways. you know. So I would definitely, uh, definitely give him the thumbs up. Now, Stu, to the other part of the question. Who gets under your skin? Well, I don't think this is a permanent thing, <laughs> but right now the other school in L.A. is being about as least hospitable as possible. Okay. I don't know. I think that I don't I think that had been some challenges for a while to be honest cuz you'd ask some people when I have a decent relationship with Jim Mora, there were some times where I think that was frustrating for a lot of folks there as well. Mhm. New Heisel was is very out, you know, was very pleasant for a lot of people I thought, but I think there's been some challenges. Oh, I remember being very, very open with New Heisel. Yeah. And then it started to clamp down with Mora and now with Chip. So far, at least, it is completely... I mean, you can go to practice, which I guess is more than you can say at a lot of places. You just can't talk to the head coach. Yeah. What else you got? 
have like I'm, I'm not going to pile on a whole bunch. Do you have a long list of least hospitable? I I don't, but I would say this: there are certain places that I haven't been in a while, and the reason one of the reasons why might be is if you if you're going to spend you know five hundred dollars or maybe even eight hundred dollars of your company's money to go on a trip and you really can't get much other than stuff you might be able to the same stuff you could probably get on a conference call if you can't really see much you can't really talk to many people it's not worth going on that trip i mean some schools some schools fans will say well how can we cover this and not that well that might be the reason if if the access is just kind of not very much it's just not worth the money to go to those places i mean you're making kind of a business decision on that it's not to say you don't talk about the team if they're doing well or there aren't noteworthy but i think it comes back to that by the way another great sid and it's not a school i've in you know i've done with on the tv side but kirk sampson i would give a shout out here because he's been there a long time at auburn and sometimes it's not always been so great for him to be the sid i can imagine the year when cam newton was was leading them to a national title there were a lot of headaches there but from my perspective on it he was always he was always a professional, and so I'll give him a shout out as well. There's, a, I mean, there's a long list of great SIDs that we've worked with. John Bianco at Texas. You mentioned Kirk. People who we've worked with for a long time at various schools, and I'm just afraid by going down this road too far that yeah, we're gonna leave people out. I'll leave people like out, snubbed. and they're listening, and they're gonna feel snubbed. As long as you didn't make it on our least hospitable list, you're good with us. Let's put it that way. Wow. No. No Westwood love from Stu on this one. Ouch. That is not. Uh, <laughs> wait, you need to. You need to. You need to. I put one school out there. You need to put one school out there. And the only reason I felt comfortable doing that is that everybody is complaining about them at this point. What about another Big Ten school? You mentioned a bunch of really ones that are really easy to deal with. What about one that's particularly hard to deal with? You know, Michigan definitely has its challenges. I will say this when. They were very. They were not easy to deal with. Richrod got there for for a couple of years, and they were easier to deal with. I can't really speak on whether got how whether it was like Lloyd Carr when Brady Hoke was there or not. With Harbaugh, I I really think Harbaugh is presenting his own challenges there, and it's it's some of the it's just it's unique to him. I really think. Yeah, absolutely. I feel bad when I get the emails that go out to their local media about like media availability it's so limited you know what like and there's examples of that like whereas the k-state sid is very helpful the k-state head coach (laughs) is a legendary coach but you know there was there are just just challenges to to covering it where it's like you know you heard these stories of of the local beat writer how limited the access is and it's like okay this is basically what the fans are going to get of their team it's not to say, it's not for a lack of effort it's just the reality of it i mean the biggest change since i've been covering the sport is that the coaches have so much control over it you know it used to be that who i mean maybe this was just the way it was always done the practices are open this many days and whatnot but now like the coach comes in especially these nick saban disciples and immediately lays down the law and and restricts the access you know to whatever degree they're going to restrict it so to, to to Tim Teslin's credit, USC's has never changed. The coach has changed how God knows how many times over the last few years, but their access has not. So kudos to them. Bruce, you got a specific question for somebody who wants to know. 
you went to San Diego State this spring. Can San Diego State go 2-0 against the Pac-12 this season? I think their experienced offensive line dominates Stanford. Not sure if we can contain Bryce Love again, though. I think they definitely can. I think this is a really good team. As he said, O-line, everybody's back. And they were young last year. They're better. Now, they did lose Rashad Penny, great running back slash kick returner. He was a first-round pick, I believe, of the Seahawks. But Juwan Washington, I went down there and spent some time with Juwan Washington. He was the second running back last year. He's also a really good kick returner. He's a little more like Donnell Pumphrey. He's bigger than Donnell Pumphrey, but he's closer to Pumphrey than he is Penny. They are expecting big things from him. He could be a 1,500, maybe even a 2,000-yard back. So they open at Stanford. It's a Friday night game. It would not surprise me if they won that game and beat them for the second time. The other game, by the way, they have a three-year starting quarterback, so they, the offense should be really good again. Jeff Horton likes to just be really physical. Obviously, Rocky Long is going to have a super aggressive defense. That's what that's all he's that's what he's about. Then they have a Sacramento State game week two, and then they host Arizona State, who they whooped the last time out. I think they could, I think they will beat Arizona State. Uh, I'll put the chance of them doing the sweep again at. 50%. I will put it at 42%. That's still pretty high because, you know, even if they beat Stanford, it's not a gimme that they're going to beat Arizona State. So I'm I'm uh, pleasantly surprised that you have that much uh, faith in the Aztecs. I mean, I kind of think they'll lose the opener at Stanford on that Friday night, but, you know, you've pointed out that, and, and I have as well, their D-line is a, probably the biggest question on their team, and and San Diego State loves to run the ball down your throat. You know who San Diego State reminds me of a little bit uh, the, at, at this point in their program? The Fresno State Pat Hill teams that would go out and knock off uh, Wisconsin, Oregon State when they were really good, almost beat the Reggie Bush, Matt Liner, USC team, but then they'd lose a couple games in the conference. They had no business losing. Like they, were, they clearly put more emphasis on out-of-conference than conference. Now, San Diego State did win the conference a couple years ago, but it does seem like they're becoming known as the giant killer. But then if you were to say, like, who do you think will win the Mountain West this year? I'd say, oh, boys, you're Fresno. Well, you would think they wouldn't match up that well with Stanford. When I when I talked to Jeff Horton, who runs their offense, and he was a guy who coached at Wisconsin, spent a little time in the NFL, it's basically like they are, you know, as I described it to him, you're like Wisconsin with better weather. And he said, yes, that's he kind of bought into that. And as he explained it, a lot of people in this day and age of football don't see what they do. They don't know how to fit it right because they're just so used to spread football. Well, you would think that's some of the same formula Stanford has, has bludgeoned people with. And so maybe it was a one-off. Maybe Stanford would be better prepared for what what uh, San Diego State's going to do this year. Like I said, no penny. No, uh, no penny. This time it's Juwan Washington. So maybe they'll they'll be able to handle it. But uh it's one of the it's one of the better underrated games of, of, of week one this season. And it's on Friday night, so you can watch it. And uh, it won't be going up against some of the really good games on Saturday. Why don't we wrap with the the topic that just keeps keeps on giving? Oh, by the way, I'm, Scott Butler asked that San Diego State question. I, again, forgot to say the name. I apologize. Greatest defense ever since we brought talked about Clemson's defensive line this year possibly being among the all-time greats. We've been getting nominations for for other historical ones. Arthur in Atlanta. Now, he's about to mention a defensive line that's coached by 
that was coached by a guy we both know very well, Jim Donnan, when he was still at Georgia. Bruce and Stu, I know you briefly mentioned the Georgia defensive line that featured Richard uh, Seymour and Marcus Stroud. And this was in 2000. They were both first-round picks the next year. However, I don't. he says that he doesn't think we realize how many other NFL defensive linemen were on that team. Charles Grant started at defensive end on that team as a sophomore and was a first-round pick in 2002. Jonathan Sullivan did not contribute much that year but was a freshman de- defensive tackle who ended up being the number six overall pick in 2003. I do not remember that guy. I, I remember Jonathan Sullivan. Yeah, I remember all those guys. And then others on that defensive line played in the NFL were Demetric Evans, who was undrafted but ended up playing 10 seasons in the league, and Josh Mallard, who was a seventh-round pick and played for six NFL teams over the next seven seasons. That's pretty strong if you ask me. It is. It's surprising that that team would go only 8-4. and four. That was um, our man's undoing, unfortunately. He was fired after that season, and in came Mark Richt. If I'm not mistaken, the quarterback of that team, though, was Quincy Carter? Could be. Either Quincy Carter or... One year, I remember they had... Uh, oh, God, what was my guy? There's a golfer, Nate Hibble, who I think might have been there. Maybe Nate had already transferred to Oklahoma. I think uh, so. I think it was... It was, uh, look it up. It was probably Quincy Carter, and I just remember that team because I lived in Atlanta at that time. That team was considered a, a big disappointment because, of, because of specifically because of Seymour and Stroud and, and that defense. And while you look that up, here's another contribution. Disappointed you forgot to mention this from Brian Clark. Disappointed you forgot to mention your pick for the 2003 ACC champs, NC State Wolfpack. If he is referencing me or you having picked NC State to win the ACC in 2003... Oh, he's referencing me because it's addressed to me. Uh, I will, I'll have to take his word for that. It's quite possible I picked NC State to win the ACC in 2003. But he's saying that their defensive line in 2006 had three first-round picks, including the number one overall, Mario Williams. He doesn't mention specifically who the other ones were, but that would have been... Oh, shoot. Who was the really good defensive lineman on the same team as Mario Williams? They had an edge rusher who was really fast play for the Niners. God, what was his name? I know some of the guys who recruited those guys because that was Chuck. People expect us to have this encyclopedic recollection, and so I feel bad. I feel like a fraud when I can't name a guy from 2006 off the top of my head. It's 2006 or 2003. Uh, he was making fun of the fact that I picked them to Manny win. Lawson was the guy I'm thinking yes, of. Yes, Manny Lawson. He's making fun of the fact that I apparently picked them to win the ACC in 2003, which actually makes sense now that I think about it. That would have been Philip Rivers' era. Did he send you this on Pony Express? Why is he picking on you now, 15 years later? <laughs> I don't, I'm He's an NC State fan with a long memory. I know, but why is he taking so long to get to you about this? What I'm missing something here. I you'll have to ask him. Ask. No ask offense, him. Stu, but you said a lot of dumb things between. Now I know. I don't think. It, I think there should be a statute of limitations. <laughs> like at some point, your your old bad predictions should finally be considered irrelevant. I don't believe yeah. I picked NC State to win anything of note since then. Huh. So who's the third? Do we know who the third one he's talking about is? On that NC State team? Yeah. I I want to say, and this may be blurring together, but they had a bunch of kids from. Uh, Who's a big safety that Adrian Wilson, I think, was on that group. Steven Tulloch was on that team. I'll I just don't know I'm if they bail you out here. I just don't know if those guys were like stars uh-huh. at that point. John McCargo might have been on that John team. John McCargo, defensive tackle. So Mario Williams, Manny Lawson, and John McCargo all went in the first round, though Manny Lawson was considered for NFL purposes as a linebacker. So 
that would be the standard here that we'll have to measure Clemson against, at least recently. I went to uh, more information than you want. I went. To, I had a buddy on that staff. And I remember I went to visit them. The may have been the first or second off season, and it was like going almost like to, into a doctor's office. It was way before they had oh, renovated I everything. I, I was, I, yeah, I went to that office. I remember that place. Yeah. So a couple of the Florida State guys I knew ended up going with a motto. One of them was Manny Diaz. The other one was Chris Demarest. And uh, so I had visited them. So I, I was pretty familiar with some of the players they brought in. You had a little bit of transition because Chow, I remember Chow said it was really hard for him to leave because he still had Phillip Rivers and he went to go coach Carson Palmer. And I believe Mazzoni went in there and worked with, with uh, Phillip Rivers. And obviously Phillip Rivers had a great career, went on to continue to have a great career. But that was a talented team, no doubt. I was a huge Phillip Rivers fan when he was in college. I, he was tremendous. And I guess I, I'm not sure I would have predicted that he'd still be in the NFL 15 years later, but kudos to him. And I guess that, that 2006 team set a precedent for NC State that they that they delivered on again this year of having the stacked defensive line that still only manages to go like 8-4. and four. Hmm. Okay. Is that it for everything? That's it for now. Next week I'm going on vacation, but uh, we'll figure something out. I hope to mostly fall off the grid next week, but I, maybe maybe I'm squeezing a podcast somewhere. What There's exciting a, things are you doing on on your vacation? Snorkeling, spending a lot of time at the pool, beach. It's Maui. You, you can't really you can't go wrong there. All right. All As right. always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com. Also, I haven't said this in a long time, but if you like the Audible, please go on Apple Podcasts. I guess I can't say iTunes anymore. And give it a review. Give it a five-star review. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about-